0: You know, one of, uh, one of the wonderful things about America as a country is that we are truly a nation of immigrants. We are a nation where everyone is ultimately from somewhere else, right, apart from those of Native American descent. Florida, of all of the American states, maybe more than any, is a state where everyone is from somewhere else. You can, you can have an entire conversation with somebody just around the question, so how did you and how did you, your people end up in Florida of all places this swampy hot little peninsula how did you get here we are uh, a state of immigrants you know my family we have our own story my uh, great grandparents uh, came over here from bohemia from what's now the czech republic uh, seeking a better life for themselves my great grandfather was a, a carpenter a cabinet maker first settled up uh, in uh, grand rapids michigan working in a furniture factory nearly died in a blizzard one winner and said, you know what? We're going to Florida. <laughs> no more blizzards. Uh, we, are, we are headed to Florida. I have, an, I have another friend uh, who pastored in Florida uh, who his family were Armenian and they fled uh, in the midst of the Armenian genocide of the last century. His ancestors, it literally became a question of do we stay here and die or do we get out? Do we try to find a way to, to, to leave death and go towards life? And they were bounced from one country to another country before eventually making their way to America and then eventually uh, to Florida. Everyone is from somewhere else. And you know, the kingdom of God is a lot like that. Everyone in the kingdom of God, in God's people, at some point looked to themselves and looked to God and said, I cannot stay where I am. I'm looking at my own country, my own culture, and I'm seeing that it's choking the life out of me. And I need, to, I need to leave this place and to seek out a life with God. You know, I think when we get to heaven, we'll turn and look at one another and maybe spend the first 10,000 years uh, of our eternity going, so who are you? how did you get here? Tell me about what you left behind. Tell me about your place and your, your culture. Because everybody will have been from somewhere else. Maybe you'll, uh, at some point through the multitudes, find your way to Abraham. And you'll say, Abraham, tell me about what you left behind to get here. And he'll say, well, let me tell you about what life was like in Ur of the Chaldeans, in the middle of Mesopotamia, where we had power and we had wealth. But God said, leave this place and go to a land that I'll show you. And I had no idea where he was taking me. But we set out and we left. Or maybe you'll find Moses. And he'll say, let me tell you, I was... I was at the top in Egypt, a foreigner, but living as one of Pharaoh's household. But God called me to go and to confront Pharaoh and to to take my people and to go on this journey to the promised land. Or maybe you'll find Peter, and he'll say, you know what? One day I was just cleaning my my fishing nets there in a little town in Galilee, and Jesus came, came and said to me, come and follow me. And I discovered this life that was rich beyond my wildest dreams, and I ultimately gave my life. Or maybe Paul, and he'll say, I had to leave behind my life of zealous, fanatical commitment to my Jewish religion, my persecution and my self-righteousness of all other people. And Jesus literally knocked me off my high horse and blinded me and led me on this journey to building a church full of Gentiles. I left something in pursuit of something I didn't know and found something that I never could have imagined. And that's the story uh, that everyone in the kingdom of God has, that I had to let go of something in order to find something. You know, it's very hard for us uh, in contemporary America, as full as it is of many blessings and immense comforts, to think that we too have to leave something, something of what this world is making us into, its effects on our souls and on our lives, to pursue the abundant life that we were created for. It's the journey that this psalmist goes on uh, in Psalm 120. He looks up uh, from a place, he's, he tells us that he's in Meshach and in Kedar, two places that are lost to history. We don't know where they are. But they're exotic places that were far from Israel. And he looks up, and, what, and the journey that he goes on, that we're going to go on as we look at this, is he's going he's to make some observations about the world that he has. The world that we find ourselves in, he's going to talk about the world that he longs for, and we're going to look at the way that we walk uh, to get from the world that we're in to the world that we long for. First off, uh, the world that we know—you know—I love the, the psalmist here. Starts his description of what life is like in Meshek and in Kedar. He starts it by describing it as a place full of lies says, deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. And then he ends it by saying that it's a place of violence. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. It's like he looks up one day and he says, you know what, I long for truth. But all around me, people are committed to bending the truth, to twisting the truth. I long for peace, for, for shalom, for flourishing, for well-being. And I look around me and these these liars all around me are bent on warfare. They're bent on violence. And so he starts by looking and describing the world around him and having a moment where he realizes this is not the way it's supposed to be. Life in Meshech, life in Kedar, is killing me. These people are bent on war. They may eventually actually kill me. But life here is not the way that it's supposed to be. And it's full of lies that keep him from seeing that, right? You know, there may not be a more subtle or dangerous lie that we as human beings tell ourselves than the fact that the world is basically fine, right? That may be the biggest lie that most of us, most of the time, uh, tend to believe, that the world is basically fine, that people are basically good, that, you know what, if, we, if you just give people enough time and enough resources, eventually we'll solve the problems of this world. Right? If you give us enough time and energy, we'll figure out our way towards world peace. That maybe the next medical advancement will, will prolong our lives and postpone death. Right? Maybe, the, uh, maybe the next promotion that comes into our lives will finally give us the stability and safety that we've longed for. Maybe the next election results will finally bring in justice and peace. One of the biggest lies that we tell ourselves is that we can basically manage this that we're resourceful enough, that we're good enough, and that we're basically, everything's going to be fine. I don't know how many of your conversations go like this with the people in your life. Dave, how are you doing? I'm fine. I'm fine. Busy, a little bit worn out, need a break, Uh, but you know what, I'm fine. I would guess that on a superficial level, about 90% of my brief conversations go somewhat like that. Everything's basically okay. Just, just worn out, just a little tired, working too hard. And this psalm is an invitation to us to look around us, to look at ourselves, and to admit that things aren't nearly as fine as we'd like to believe that they are. Then when we say we're fine and just a little bit busy, that busyness isn't just a result of, of too many demands at work or the pressure of parenting or, uh, or, or any of the circumstantial stuff in our lives. That it's driven more often than not by a deep anxiety and unrest that will always be toiling, that'll always be busy, that keeps itself busy because everything around us and everything within us is not the way that it should be. Eventually, uh, the world around us, bent on lies and bent on violence, starts to squeeze us into its own image over time, right? You can't live in a place uh, that's been on lies and and maintain a posture of truthfulness for long right you can't for long be a be a peacemaker in a world that's trying constantly to attack you in the same way you can't live in a consumer culture forever until you start to become greedy and bent on your next acquisitions right you can't live in a hypersexualized and pornographic if that's a word, world for long uh, before you start to be molded into its image as a lustful person. This world, uh, left to itself, you are not going to drift on your own towards being a wise, prayerful, contemplative, and reflective person. If you're married, your marriage isn't going to drift on its own towards being one marked by honesty and intimacy and tenderness. Right, That over time, life in this world starts to exert its corrosive influence on our souls, on our relationships, on our life with God. I love the way that the prophet Isaiah puts it. In Isaiah chapter 6, when he beholds a vision of God, he says, Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He's saying, so I live in this people of unclean lips, but I can't say that I'm not a part of the problem. I'm also a person of unclean lips. I'm a liar. I'm a gossiper. I'm a slanderer. That The problem is within me as well. And most of us go most of our lives blind to this fact. And it takes the intervention of God. It takes the revelation that only God can bring to get us to eventually see life for what it is. To get us to see that life, uh, that we are being lied to about life in this world. That we're made for something more. That we're made in the image of God. That we're desired for a relationship with God. That he loves us. That he pursues us. That he sent his son for us. When we start to see this, this story of God and its clarity, then our eyes are open to look around us and to see the lies that we've believed. About what our lives have to be. At some point, we have to wake up to the reality of the brokenness around us. One of my favorite stories of this in the Bible is that moment when the prodigal son, remember him, the boy who left the home of his father, seeking out life in a far country. And we're told that he squanders his wealth uh, on parties and on women. And then one day, uh, having worked himself into abject poverty and slavery, and he's eating pig slop out of the animal troughs, and then he looks, up to him, he looks up in this moment of clarity and says, what am I doing here? I've abandoned life at my father's house. I've abandoned his wealth and his provision and his love and his grace. And it tells us, uh, Jesus says in the parable, that in that instant he came to his senses. And he got up and he said, I need to go back to my father's house. The journey, the journey starts with a realization that we can't stay where we are. That we've been dehumanized and we've been degraded. And we remember that we were made for more than that. We are made for our Father's house. We are made for life with Him. Will you, uh, will you name the ways that you are not fine? At the beginning of this summer, at the beginning of this journey, will you be honest enough to look at your life and say, you know what, no, it's not fine. My marriage isn't fine. My prayer life, it's not fine. My addictions, they're not getting better. Uh, they're getting worse. I'm living out of a place of compulsion, a place of drivenness, and everything is not fine. Gordon Dalby put it this way. He says, to let God meet us where we are, we must know where we are. And such, such an exercise in truth-telling can often be painful. Can you enter into the painful truth-telling of saying, this is where I am. This is an honest assessment of my life. This is, this is the reality. Can you have the prodigal son moment? I've got to get back to the father's house. Or, you know, the Bible also has counterexamples. There's the story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus in pursuit of eternal life and says, Jesus, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, give away all your possessions to the poor and follow me. And we're told that he left Jesus sad because he had much wealth. You know, sometimes we come to the awareness of of, of what's wrong with us, the addictions and the attachments and the compulsions. And sometimes we look at it and say, no, I can't. I can't leave it behind. But will we admit where we are? And then will we admit uh, that we long for more than what we currently have? Can you name the fact that you long for something more than what this life and this world has given you. I love that what, what the psalmist says here. Verse 6, Too long have I made my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. He still has an awareness. He hasn't been so choked out by life in Meshach and Qadar that he's accepted it as normal. He says, I long for peace. I long for shalom. That's the Hebrew word here. The word that means perfect wholeness, flourishing, well-being, peace with God, peace with one another. And he says, I long for it. I want it. Too long have I lived in this world that doesn't offer it. Woe is me that I live in this place. C.S. Lewis put it this way. There is a desire within each of us, in the deep center of ourselves that we call our heart. We are born with it, and it is never completely satisfied, and it never dies. We are often unaware of it, but it is always awake. Lewis elsewhere puts it this way. He says, if you you find yourself living with longings that aren't met by life in this world, the, the, the reasonable assumption is that you are not made to be satisfied by the pleasures of this world, those desires were given to you, those longings were given to you to lead you on beyond your life in this world to someone else, to something else that can satisfy the deepest desires of your heart. Each of us was made uh, for a depth of intimacy, knowing and loving, that even the best relationships in this world can't satisfy, even the best marriage, can't quite get to the depth of your longing. Right, Each of us was made for a security, for a stability that even the most successful and wealthy people in this world still long for and want, that the next promotion isn't going to bring. Each of us was made for a sense of meaning and purpose, uh, a sense of making a difference in this world, that no matter how high you get on whatever the ladder looks like in your profession, it's never going to satisfy a meaning that even, the, even if parenting goes as well as it can go for you, that if you lay that burden of solving your longing for meaning and purpose on the backs of your children, they can never live up to. They'll be crushed in the process. That we're made for a longing that's meant to, live us beyond, to lead us beyond what this life can offer. And when we live as though uh, this world can satisfy it, when we live as though what we most want is within our grasp, if we can just figure it out, if we can just figure out how to make it happen, it's a recipe for anxiety. It's a recipe for compulsion. It's a recipe for addiction. We have to come to admit uh, that this world can't satisfy us and that the things that we turn to, the things that we set our hearts on in this world, ultimately uh, become addictive. Right? If we believe that if I just get a little bit further in my job, then I'll have life and peace and happiness. We become workaholics, right? If we believe that if I can just get my children to turn out the way that I want them to, we become compulsive, we become anxious, we read every parenting book that, get, that hits the bookshelves without ultimately solving them. If we believe that if we just can find pleasure and escape from the pressures of this life, we become addicts to the substances that this world offers, to, to pornography, we become addicts. Gerald May put it this way uh, in his wonderful little book, uh, Addiction and Grace. He says, psychologically, addiction uses up desire. It's like a psychic malignancy sucking our life energy into specific obsessions and compulsions. That's what all of those counterfeit longings do. And Jesus invites us, Jesus invites each and every one of us to lay down those addictions to lay down those compulsions and to go on this journey to what matters most, to what we most long for, which he tells us is ultimately a life of communion with God, a life with God. Listen to this invitation from Jesus. Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Come to me, you burnout, exhausted, weary, and heavy-laden people. People who are worn out uh, by trying to manage your own life. People who are worn out chasing escape in your latest addiction or obsession people who are worn out chasing after a righteousness and a goodness of your own, come to me, and I will give you real and lasting rest. It's not to be found anywhere else. G.K. Chesterton, uh, one of my favorites, put it this way. He said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel, knocks on the door of a whorehouse, is really looking for God. What a ridiculous place to look for God. And yet it's the offer of embrace, the offer of escape, the offer of comfort that is a counterfeit for what we're made for. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Well, how do we do it? How do we leave the world that that we're in and seek the world that we're after, the world that we long for in Christ? How do we walk uh, that journey with Jesus and towards Jesus? Well, the biblical way that the biblical authors describe the steps, it's not not a lot of steps. It's not do this, then do this, then do this. But the name that the the biblical authors give more than any other for the first step is repentance. Repentance. It's a big word, uh, but it simply means turning. Turning away from the sinful life in the world that we've experienced, from the things that we think we can't turn away from, from our attachments and compulsions, from our sin, to turn from that and towards Christ is repentance. And it is the first step towards the journey. And you know what? It's not just the first step. Repentance and faith are the second step and the third step and the 2,199th step and the 3 millionth step That the journey towards Jesus, the journey with Jesus is repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Left foot, right foot. Left foot, right foot. Acknowledging my sin. Again, as though for the first time, Jesus, still, I'm still a sinner. I'm still angry. I'm still compulsive. I'm still addicted. In faith, Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you died for sinners. Thank you that you died for addicts. Thank you that you gave your life for me. You know, the, this uh, verse 3 and 4 of our psalm is a picture of divine judgment. He says, what shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue, a warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. These are metaphorical pictures of God's judgment, a coming on the wicked, on the liar, on the violent. And there's not a whole lot in, that, in those two verses that make you think repentance, grace, faith. But in the scriptures, God's judgment is always, always, always an invitation to repentance. right? Even when it's not explicit. You remember Jonah, the reluctant prophet that tried to get out of his calling and ends up in Nineveh. Remember the message uh, that, that Jonah gave to the Ninevites. It's the least hopeful sermon in the Bible. It's basically, in three days, God's going to destroy this place. End of story. He walks away. And what, what happens? Revival breaks out. The king repents, the people repent, and God spares them, right? God's judgment, the reality of God's law, the reality of his holiness, the reality of just how far short our lives fall from him is always, always meant to lead us to repentance, to God. You know what? You're right. I'm so sorry. My life is so, so rebellious. It's so bent in on myself, so bent in away from you and away from my neighbors. I'm sorry and I want more. Forgive me, Lord, forgive me. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith together are always the way of the journey. You know, there's a wonderful little book. Uh, It was written in the early 1800s. Uh, It's called The Way of the Pilgrim. Uh, It's written by, it's an anonymous Russian author. We don't know, uh, to this day, we don't know who wrote it. Uh, It's the story of a man uh, who was born into about as difficult a life as you can imagine. He was born in early 1800s Russia, uh, which was not a great place to be born, uh, particularly if you weren't the czar or one of his, you know, family members. So he was born uh, into a difficult time. He lost uh, the use of his arm in a childhood accident. He was orphaned at an early age, and then his brother stole his inheritance. His wife died uh, just a couple of years into their marriage, and he was left without any attachments in this world, without a a wife, without a family, without land, without a job. And so he was a wanderer uh, in the world, dependent on the charity of others uh, to supply uh, his basic needs. Here's one of the things that he writes. By the grace of God, I am a Christian man, by my actions, a great sinner, and by calling a homeless wanderer of the humblest birth who roams from place to place. My worldly goods are a knapsack with some dried bread in it on my back and in my breast pocket a Bible, and that is all. On the 24th Sunday after Pentecost, I went to church and I heard read these words, pray without ceasing. And so he goes on a journey to figure out what it means uh, to pray without ceasing. You ever thought of that that verse, that command? It's a hard one to figure out, right? Well, I've got to do other things, right? I've got to to go to work. I've got to talk to my friends. I've got a parent. I've got to uh, deal with life in the world. How do I pray without ceasing? And so he goes on this journey to learn what it means to live with God, to to pray uh, without relenting. And he meets an older man, an older priest, uh, who teaches him to pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy. And he says in your waking moments when when it comes to mind, pray that prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy. And so he wanders through this life without a home, uh, living his life trying to love the people around him and living this life with God, praying, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy. Now, he reports to have prayed this prayer at times up to 2,000 times a day. He became someone, it became his his Jesus prayer that he prayed over and over and over again. And there's nothing magic about about the words. I'm not suggesting that you learn how to pray it 2,000 times a day. What's beautiful about this story and about what this man lived is that if you want to live life with God, if you want to live a life of union and intimacy with God, it doesn't take learning. Uh, facts that are beyond your knowledge, although we should always seek to know God more and to know His Word more. Right? It doesn't take an enlightenment uh, that's out there somewhere. It's not found in the next book that you buy or the next therapist that you visit. It's not even found in the next brilliant word that you hear from the pulpit. That it's found in this simple confession, Jesus Christ, God, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, left foot, right foot, repentance and faith, journeying with Jesus, following after him. Maybe you've been here for a while and you're wondering what a life with God in Christ looks like, whether or not you really can begin a Christian life. Maybe there's things in your life that you fear that you can't leave behind and you know that Jesus might ask you to. Well, Jesus simply to begin a life with him asks for repentance and faith, that you turn, however imperfectly, however partially, from life on your own, from life and independence from God, and you answer his call to follow him. But you know, the journey with Jesus uh, isn't just an initial decision to follow him. It's a daily decision to come to him. Right? C.S. Lewis uh, has this beautiful picture at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia. The, uh, the human characters uh, there in Narnia say, this is it, this is the country that I was made for. I've come home. What's left? Right? What, what's the next part of my journey? I've, 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 in, in, in our sense, I've, start, I've followed Jesus. I've gotten there. What's next? Further up and further in is the way he describes it. Further up and further in. Learning and pursuing more of my communion with God, more of the life that he has to offer. Further up and further in, not moving on from His grace, not moving on from the gospel, but into it more and more, further up and further in, by honest repentance and heartfelt faith. Let's pray.